if you would, from the youngest and newest, Helen Duncan, to the one who has been with us the longest, Sylvia Oldacre, and everybody in between. Hear the word of God from Psalm 32. I have to say, in preparation for Resurrection Sunday, I read and pondered all the typical passages from the Gospels, but I kept coming back to this psalm, Psalm 32, which was scheduled as the next in the line of our series in the Psalms. And I have to say, apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus, the blessed condition of the forgiven sinner would not be possible. This psalm indicates to us how we really understand what it is that Jesus has been resurrected and that our sins are forgiven. Follow along as I read this Psalm of David, chapter 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. As we consider these words, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, by your grace, give us ears to hear and hearts to understand your word this morning. Give us the joy of salvation. And remind us of the precious promises of your grace. Lord, may the words spoken here in the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Jesus is risen. In fact, we can say that again. Jesus is risen. He is risen so now what do we do? Our reaction to the Lord over life and death is made evident in our response to him regarding our sin. You see, the whole point of the life of Jesus was to save his people from their sin. In fact, that was what the Holy Spirit told the angel to tell Mary when he was born. You shall call his name Jesus. And of course, that name itself means Savior, the one who would save his people from their sins. And of course, from the consequences of those sins, death itself. So this psalm is written from the perspective of someone who knows that in the Lord, in David's case, in the Lord who was to come, his sins were forgiven. 
For those of us on this side of the cross, it is for those who know, looking back on what Jesus accomplished for us, that our sins are forgiven. So therefore, there are four statements that we are going to study a little bit more in depth as we look at this psalm. First of all, and I should note, in case you're wondering, the outline in your bulletin actually bleeds over to the back this morning, so don't get too disappointed if you think I'm running to the end and I haven't. But there are four statements here. First of all, it is blessed to be free. Second, it is a relief to confess sin. Third, it is praiseworthy to be forgiven. And fourth, grace's benefits go beyond forgiveness. First of all, it is blessed to be free. And isn't that the case? We live in a land where we say that we love freedom. But the kind of freedom that is often expressed in our land is not the freedom that is expressed here. This is, first of all, freedom from guilt. He uses three words for sin here, three words for being forgiven. He says, first of all, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. A more literal sense of this is an understanding that this idea of transgression is really the word rebellion. And when you have rebelled against somebody, there is a burden upon you because that relationship of the one you rebelled against is broken. A trust has been broken. A fellowship has been broken. And David is particularly thinking of how his relationship with God was one that he gained at birth being a part of the people of God, the covenant of God. And when he understood his sin... He understood that his sin was in rebellion against God. That's the word transgression here, revolt or rebellion. And here it says, blessed is the one whose this rebellion is lifted away. I always think it's kind of funny because in our current program, I guess not so current even, our NASA program in uh, space work, or astronauts in our country. Uh, they say it's the National Aeronautic Space Administration, I think is how that is, NASA. But the abbreviation NASA is actually the Hebrew word for pardon, or to lift up, or take away. And it says here, the transgression or the revolt or rebellion of someone against God is taken up, lifted away, almost as if a burden has been removed. Secondly, it says this blessed person who is in this state of freedom from guilt, his sin is covered. This word for sin is the word to miss the mark. That can either be an intentional thing where someone who shoots an arrow intentionally misses the mark, perhaps to prove a point or something like that, or it could be someone who has unintentionally missed the mark. And of course, this covers both unintentional and intentional sins. It says these sins are covered. When God covers something, nobody else is going to find it. In fact, we're told that God will remember these sins no more. We're told that he's thrown them in the depths of the sea. We're told, them that, that we're told that they're as far as the east is from the west. For that person who is blessed by having his sins covered by God, they are removed forever. 
The third statement is this, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. This word iniquity refers especially to the guilt of sin. You see, when you sin, you have real guilt. This isn't something where some counselor will tell you, well, it's just something that's there, a feeling that you need to just put away. No, this is real guilt. He says, blessed is the man against whom this guilt The Lord does not count. This word for count is the word we use in theological circles, imputed or accounted. Reckoned is the sense. The Lord no longer imputes that guilt to that person. In other words, when God looks at your moral account before him, He looks, and in that account, if you are forgiven, the guilt is removed. There is no more debt. Now, I have to say, when I look at my account in the bank, I have my mortgage from my bank, and so I can look at the mortgage account, and I can look at my money accounts. For some reason, the mortgage account is still higher than my money accounts. And when I look at that and I understand what it means to have this imputed guilt taken away, I understand that overwhelming sense and burden of the debt of guilt before God is taken away for the sinner whose sins are forgiven. God no longer sees the guilt in your account because it was placed on Jesus Christ. It was imputed to him for our sake. So for the sinner, he is blessed because he is freed from the guilt. He is freed from the burden of his rebellion. He is freed from the sin which has so much covered his own life. Now God has covered it for his sake. And he is free from guilt. But this is only the case for those who have truly confessed their sins to him. Because this person who is free from guilt is also free from guile. In whose spirit there is no deceit. Unfortunately, I think every Sunday morning there are those who sit in our churches. There are some who stand in the pulpits. And they say they have confessed their sin, but they have harbored it among themselves. And they are trying to deceive themselves and deceive others, and there's an attempt to deceive God. This person is not free. This person is not free from guilt because his sin has not been taken away. But the person who has no deceit in their spirit, in other words, they truly have come confessing their sin to the Lord, that person will have his guilt removed. What a wonderful thing. I remember many years ago there was an old movie, Disney movie, called Pollyanna. Perhaps you remember that silly movie. I don't remember all the details, but I do remember a little bit about the pastor in that movie. He was a fire and brimstone preacher. And I have to say, we probably need a few more of these today. But this fire and brimstone preacher, he could really preach it. He could really tell everybody how judgment was coming. But evidently, that preacher didn't really understand grace. Of course, in the movie, it was a silly movie. I wouldn't recommend the theology that was given in the movie or anything like that. But Pollyanna had a talk with the pastor, and he realized he was not saved that the things he railed against in the sermon were things that he may have harbored in his own heart. Now, Pollyanna might not have gotten it right either, but David reminds us here that the truly forgiven person is someone who is not two-faced with God. He's not someone 
who on the surface and in front of everybody else, perhaps his family, perhaps even to himself, he confesses that sin, but really he's not really wanting to depart from it. He wants to harbor it in his heart. He has guile. But the psalm here says, Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven, and blessed is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. In other words, you're not trying to deceive God or others by harboring your sin. Why? Because it's a relief to confess sin. Listen what happened before David confessed his sin. When he refused to listen to the convicting spirit chucking away at his sin, We don't know when this was in David's life. Perhaps it was with Bathsheba and the sin he had. Perhaps it was with some other sin that he harbored in his heart. But there was a period of time when he was silent. He refused to confess his sins. He knew he was a sinner. But he didn't want to confess it. And there was a dreadful condition for this silent sinner. It says here, my bones wasted away. The word for waste away is worn out. Weary. Sometimes guilt can be so overwhelming that medical theology or medical practices will say there's a psychosomatic nature uh, to some of our illnesses and some of our aches and pains. Now, I'm not going to say that everybody who has achy bones, it's because of their sin. We know that some people have achy bones because they've got something wrong with their bones. Or some people have achy bones because they're just frankly getting old. Whatever it is, but some people have achy bones because they refuse to confess their sins. And so what happens is they begin groaning all their days. In other words, life has lost its vigor because they recognize their sin This is someone who is likely a person of God who is being convicted of their sin by the Holy Spirit, but yet knows, despite this conviction, that they would rather at this moment continue in their sin than confess it to God. And it goes on. Verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. This reminds us that for David... There was a dreadful condition, not only that he was the silent sinner, but that he was being disciplined by God. This is God's grace. This is God's grace at work is when his people sin, he's going to make life difficult. Notice what happens. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Now when we think of God's hand, we think of God's wonderful protecting hand. We think of God's loving hand for his people. But here it's a heavy hand pushing down on the sinner, basically understanding that he is revealing to them their sin and their need for repentance. And because this heavy hand is upon him, there's this word that's, in fact, a very difficult word to translate. It's it's kind of a strange word, this word for strength. There's one one, uh, commentator who says, well, this is the body's juices, The body's juices are destroyed with the heat of summer. In other words, you feel dried up. Your life energy seems to be flowing away. And life is difficult. Perhaps this is you. Maybe you're laying asleep at night. God is the one who gives sleep. 
Maybe it's because there's some unconfessed sin that you refuse to give up. Perhaps it's because circumstances are such that you are so anxious about everything in life that you cannot help but try to solve everything yourself. And this, too, is how God will discipline us. Sometimes our lives will seem heavy. Our energy will be zapped. But verse 5 turns everything around, doesn't it? David has said, this is what it was like before I confessed my sin. This is what it was like when I was convicted of this sin but refused to repent. But now, verse 5, I acknowledge that finally he was no longer silent. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David goes back through those three words for sin again, doesn't he, that he just did in verses 1 and 2. The amazing condition of the forgiven sinner is so different from the dreadful condition of the silent sinner who is being disciplined. First of all, he makes his sin known to the Lord. It's not as if God didn't know it already. Why do you think he's been disciplining him? It's not as if God wasn't aware of what David was doing. This was why his hand was heavy upon him. But once he made known his sin to the Lord... What took place? Forgiveness. Unlike God who will cover our sin and remove it from us because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, the sinner wants to cover up his own sin so he's not caught or faces the consequences. And it says here that finally David stopped covering his guilt. We do that. I do that sometimes. In my own sinfulness, I don't want other people to know how guilty I am or what unworthy person I am in front of my family or in front of the people around me. And our first instinct, like Adam and Eve in the garden, is to hide from God and to think that somehow we can cover up our mistakes. Maybe we're not making clothing out of the leaves, but we're doing something like that. But David said he no longer covered his guilt. Instead, what did he do? I confessed my transgressions to the Lord. Again, the rebellion, the revolt. The things that he knew in his heart were wrong. Finally, finally he realized it was most important that he just laid it out before God. He confessed his rebellion. He no longer covered his guilt and he made his known his sin known to the Lord. Perhaps one of the most famous books that wrestles with this condition of moral guilt is the book Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky. This guy in the book, I'm not going to get through all the Russian names, but the main character in the book, he becomes someone who feels as if he's enlightened with the modern theology and the modern teaching of the day and so he thinks that he is one of these enlightened individuals who can literally get away with murder and because he's someone who has been educated in this academic sense of being able to get away with such things and having the opportunity to do so he literally does murder he takes a local merchant and he kills her in cold blood thinking that he can get away with it, but there was one thing he had not taken for granted, or he had not taken into consideration, his guilt. 
He began to be racked with guilt. And much of the book is his wrestling with the idea that he has killed this woman. This poor woman that he considers someone who is morally reprehensible. This person who he considered beneath him. And yet he could not understand how in this guilt-inspired condition... His life was being turned upside down. This discipline was heavy upon him. His nights became filled with sleeplessness. And he wrestled with these things, racked with the guilt and the horror of his deeds. Raskolnikov could not live with himself until towards the end of the book when he confessed his sin. Forgiveness is a blessing Because Jesus died on the cross for us. And once you understand what it is to be forgiven, you want everybody else to experience the same thing, don't you? Therefore, again, Elena, my daughter, would be proud for me to say, what is the therefore, therefore? It is therefore, therefore, because it is there to understand what it is like to finally be forgiven after the discipline and the struggle that life brings because of the guilt that is bearing down upon us. And once we finally understand God's grace, we cannot help but invite other people to come and experience the same thing. So therefore, he says, let everyone... Everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. When can God not be found? You see, he's calling others to confess their sin. He says, I've done it. Look at the grace that I have. Look at the blessed condition I'm in. Now my guilt is removed. Now my burden is lifted away. I want you to have the same thing. So now pray to God while he may be found. In other words, before it's too late, before you die in your sin, before it becomes too late and your conscience is seared and this discipline that has been come upon you, you no longer feel that burden of guilt so much anymore because you continue in that sin and your conscience becomes seared to the point that now you don't even understand the gravity of your sin. You're ignorant of the holy God. Pray to him when you may be found and confess your sin, then maybe, just maybe, you will avoid God's discipline that David experienced. When he says, surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him, this is a reminder of what it felt like for David to have this burden of guilt upon himself until he confessed. It was as if the waters were coming from a flood up to his neck. And he says, now is the time to confess your sin to avoid the Lord's discipline. David wants others to avoid the circumstances of his sin. That reminds me of how much it is for someone who has one of those great sin stories in their witness or testimony of God's work in their life. The people who go through those experiences where they say and they go into the depths of the sin and the degradation which they found themselves and they are freed from that sin and guilt, one of the first things if they are truly believers in Christ are saying, we don't want you to experience the same thing. Sometimes we young people, I'm not so young anymore, Sometimes when we're young, we think, oh, it would be great to have such a wonderful story of God's grace. To have been so sinful 
and have this, all of these awful things that happen in our life so I could have a great testimony. But what is David's testimony? His testimony is, confess your sin now before you experience all the consequences. Being forgiven calls others to confess now and reminds one of the Lord's safety. You, Lord, are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. It's almost as if he's telling the others not only to pray and confess their sin to the Lord, but to remind them that it's only by God's grace that he was preserved from any amount of trouble and perhaps even praying that those who pray this prayer will not experience the same trouble that he experienced. You see, he says, the Lord protects me in his hiding place. What a wonderful statement that is. The Lord encircles me with shouts of joy. Isn't that a great thing to say? And of course, here is the joy of salvation, the joy of a father whose prodigal son has come back and now is encircled with the feast of the choice lamb slain on his behalf that the entire household might know that his sins are now forgiven. It is praiseworthy to be forgiven. But if that isn't enough, David says the benefits go even beyond forgiveness. Here in verse 8, there's a change in the speaker. It's no longer David speaking to God. It's not only David speaking now to all of the individuals around him. Now it's God speaking to David and to others. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. What a wonderful thing. The Lord instructs the penitent person. The person who has confessed his sin, where can he go to find out how he can please the Lord? It's in the scriptures. God will teach us by his spirit. This is why it's so vital that believers be in the word. Is God wants us to learn how to go in his way. Once we confess our sin and turn from it, that's not the end. That's the beginning. Now he wants us to turn to his way. Of course, we know in the New Testament, Jesus will say, I am the way and the truth and the life. And Jesus will say, you, in the Old Testament scriptures, you read about me. And that's the case. God says, for those who are penitent, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. In other words, he's not going to leave them. He's going to be a teacher that's constantly involved in their lives. And how important that is, how wonderful that is. When we reveal the truth in the New Testament, for those who are in Christ, they're given the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit is always with us. He never leaves us. His eye, in that sense, is always on us. And he's teaching us time and time again, every time we open his word, every time we look to him for guidance, every time we pray to him. He is with us, instructing us and teaching us. But he also wants us in that instruction and teaching to have a willing heart. Because here's what he says. Don't be like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. In other words, he's saying this, even those who come to me, even those whom I'm instructing, sometimes your heart is still hard and sometimes you refuse to listen to me and sometimes you're like one of those stubborn donkeys. 
and I have to guide you, even sometimes when it hurts, because if I don't, then this teaching or instruction will no longer be near you. Have you ever gone through those times in your life where you are dry spiritually, and you are no longer opening God's word? It's not near you because you're not listening to God. He says here, don't be like that donkey, don't be like that horse. Have a willing heart that's willing to be corrected. And the instruction will stay near you. I have to say, I've encountered many people who have been instructed in the ways of the Lord, but refused stubbornly to listen. Those who have had a relationship perhaps with somebody outside of marriage. And they've been confronted about these particular things and they say, I don't want to change. I want to continue to do it. Those who've had what our modern society calls addictions. And they're confronted with these things and they say, but I like it so much I don't want to stop. Or perhaps it's someone who loves money. And they refuse to handle money the way the scriptures intend for them to handle money. And they say, but I just like it so much. Here he says, with a willing heart, so that you might not be curbed with bit and bridle, but that this instruction would stay near you. And then the contrast. You see, the Lord instructs the penitent person, but he also surrounds him with this Hebrew word hesed, or covenant faithfulness, steadfast love in this version. And it says here, The believer is encircled by this covenant loyalty of God. The one who trusts in the Lord is a believer. The word in scripture for believe, I think, in our modern parlance, in our English of today, should be the word trust. I think sometimes we use the word believe flippantly. I believed it was going to rain this morning. It did. But it might not have. But if we trust something is true, then we're willing to place our life upon it. We're willing to state that it is true regardless of anything else. It is something that we trust with our whole life. That person who trusts in the Lord this way, not as if we believe it's going to rain or be sunny in the morning, but as if our whole life is dependent upon it. That person who is trusting in the Lord, the believer, is encircled by the faithfulness of God. The God who gives us grace when we've been unfaithful. If you notice the one thing about this psalm, this person that's blessed here, this person that is described as blessed because they're free from sin, how did they start? They were a sinner. This psalm is not for those who are sinless. This is for those who are sinners who have been forgiven. Unlike the guilty in his many sufferings. What a terrible way to put it. If you remain in your guilt and your sin, however that is, maybe you've never come to repent in the Lord. Maybe you haven't believed anything that God has told you from the pulpit or from other believers or from the scriptures. If that is the case, then you are facing many sorrows and sufferings in life. But for those who trust in the Lord, you're surrounded, encircled by God's steadfast love. And what does that do? It brings joy. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. 
It's bringing joy in righteousness. This is the funny thing. We began the psalm with the fact that God would no longer impute guilt to us. Instead, if we trust in him, turn to him, confess our sins, repent from them, and turn to Christ, then he will take that sin that was in our account, and he will remove it from our account, place it upon Jesus on the cross. But that wasn't the final transaction. The final transaction was this. He took the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the perfect man of God who fulfilled all the law of the scriptures, the one person who walked the face of the earth that earned his way to heaven. All of his righteousness he took from Jesus and he put it in our account so that now when we look at our account, it's as if the bank owes us money. And so here it is. Those who are righteous... And who are these righteous ones? It's not David in verse 3 and 4 when he's groaning over the guilt of his sin. It's David in verse 5 when he's acknowledged his sin and made it known to God and his spirits without deceit in doing so. Now he understands that Jesus on the cross, looking forward from David's perspective, it is now wonderful because his sin is gone and he has the righteousness of his Savior And so therefore, there is nothing to do but rejoice in what God has done. The righteous ones rejoice because of the accounting of the faithful Lord. He no longer accounts to us the guilt of our sin. Instead, he credits to our account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and has been raised from the dead. Sin and death is conquered. This is the message of Resurrection Sunday. You see, instead of the guilt that we deserve and the death that we deserve and the eternal punishment that we deserve, instead we get forgiveness, we get life, and we get righteousness. What a transaction. You see, the epitome of covenant faithfulness is this. In the Lord Jesus Christ, our sin is forgiven and we are blessed. In Jesus Christ, it truly is a relief to confess our sin because the burden of our guilt is taken away. In Jesus Christ, it really is praiseworthy to be forgiven because if we're forgiven, we want everybody else to be forgiven too. And finally, if we understand the great benefits of this, we know that to understand who God is and what he wants us to do, it's only from the blessed condition of being forgiven from sin. I beg you, if you're like David, and you're like me sometimes, and you have that little bit of you that doesn't want to give up that sin, you have that guile in your spirit, You have that double-faced tone. You tell people one thing, but you do another. You tell God, I want to give everything to you, but you really want to keep part of it for yourself. I beg you, the days of groaning and discomfort and the juices being sapped in the heat of summer are on the way. Confess your sin. Honestly, truly, completely, wholly before the Lord and receive the blessing of God's grace in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, move us all to repent of our sins. Move us all.
from the account of the guilty to the account of the righteous. Remove from us the burden of the guilt that you might take it away forever, cover it up that it might not be seen again. And Lord, that we might have the righteousness of Christ applied to us for all eternity. We pray in